teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. Today's podcast message features Dr. Kurt Mackey, our guest speaker from Sky Valley Ministries 2022 Refresh Bible Conference. To learn more about Kurt and his ministries, please visit our website at svmin.com slash refresh2022. It's really good. So if you were not here the other day, I just want to quickly introduce myself again. My name is Kirk, uh, as Walt and I, I can't believe it's been four years since we actually met here in the desert at a conference together. And so that's been a lot of fun. Um, My wife and I, Rob and I, have been married 28 years, and we have two grown boys who, praise the Lord, are now off the dole, if you know what I mean. They are employed, hallelujah. Whew. Off the roll. So, what's been fun about that is you know, the youngest one uh, went to Baylor University, got a degree in business administration with an emphasis in sports and management and sales and marketing and all of that stuff. He got a dream job with the Houston Rockets and he was all set to you know, fill auditoriums and sell rockets. And I was excited about bling from rockets and hats and tickets and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden something weird happened called COVID and there were no arenas to fill because sports shut down for a year. So he got his dream job and then it, was, it turned to dust. So the poor kid pivoted quickly, called a fraternity buddy. The next thing you know, he's passing a test and now he's doing mortgages in Dallas and he's killing it, which is wonderful. So he's off the dole and he's one of our largest supporters to our ministry, hallelujah. And that's a real blessing. So we're thankful for what he's doing. Our oldest son has been involved with Arizona State University and he graduated with a design degree and just got hired a week ago, hallelujah, as a landscape architect level one for a large firm in the Tempe area, and we're excited. So now he's off the dole. So praise God. God's doing good things through those guys. And then my wife's been a teacher for over 30 years. I just want to let, so if you te- how many teachers are in the room? Right? There's a, ah, nice. I am the spouse of a teacher, which means she grades all the time, right? Like that's And I get that, that's what it is. But my wife has a heart for the least, the lost, and the broken, and the isolated, and and all of that. So she has taught level by design her whole career. If you don't know what level is, level is basically the kids that don't wanna be there. It's it's the basic level stuff, and they'd rather be anywhere else, and so she does 90% citizenship and 10% actual topic. Because she's trying to reparent the future citizens of our culture. She also speaks Spanish fluently, which is kind of fun. As an Anglo girl who speaks Spanish, it's quite a fun thing to watch her burst into an accent from Baja, California. And, uh, but that connects with a lot of her students and their families, which has been a great blessing. But she has given her work to, to serving the least in our school system. And the fascinating part about that is she actually cares and she actually loves, which also means she comes home like a wet noodle every day. She is wiped, but she gives to these kids and they will ask her questions, you know, motherly kind of questions, uh, mentoring questions, and they come after school because when you're after school, we can talk about Jesus, especially when they bring it up. And so she's essentially discipling kids in the kingdom through the school system. It's been a fascinating journey to walk with her and all of that. So I just wanted you to tell, she blesses my being here. She's excited about our move to Texas five years ago. 
and about the role that I have now in serving churches literally in the U.S. As, as Pastor said, I was uh, 20 some odd years in pastoral ministry, 18 of that in Fullerton, California, where I was a lead pastor, uh, did a lot of, we did a lot of changes. It was an amazing journey. I learned a lot, got beat up a lot, and I still love the bride of Christ. I am delighted to be with you. My job this week is to help us understand kind of where the church is, what we're going to need to do to shift if we're going to be effective and influential here in the 21st century. So this morning, I want to take you through a, a PowerPoint presentation that helps us locate perhaps the last 100 years or so. Yesterday we talked about kind of church history really quickly. Now we're going to boil it down to the last 100 years or so. Where has the church been? There's three paradigms that the church is going through, has been through, and is in the middle of shifting into. And so we're going to walk through that together. I'll share these PowerPoint slides. And then when we're done, we can have a little time of Q&A before we break away. Sound good? Glad you're here? I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad to be here. So three church paradigms. Here we go. There's three paradigms that we've been in the last hundred years. One is called Christendom, which I alluded to yesterday. We're going to explain each one of these in detail this morning. The second is the attractional church model that uh, Walt and I were actually cut our teeth in and, and were quote-unquote experts in that approach. But that has begun to wane as well, and we'll talk about that. And now we're talking about what's called the missional church, which I've been spending the last 15 years of my training reading, studying, and understanding, and helping churches to implement. So we're going to look at the difference in those and, and where we're going next. So J.I. Packer, a great theologian, he said this. He said, Christianity in North America is 3,000 miles wide and a half inch deep. And that's challenging, isn't it? 3,000 miles wide. Of course, our country is, you know, about 3,000 miles wide. That's an accurate description. The North American church, if you think about it, in the last 100 years, we've had lots of money, lots of programming, lots of teachers, lots of facilities. We've had all the best that a church could ever want. We have the best sound systems. We have the best laser beams and smoke machines. We have the best sound. We have, we have the best hi-fi. We've got all the things we need to produce a church engagement and gathering. Does it make sense? We have all the accoutrements. And yet, those that study this are realizing that when it comes down to people actually knowing, believing, following, and discipling like Jesus, we're actually pretty thin. And one of the thought experiments becomes, you know, if real uh, oppression, if real challenge came to the North American church, how would we really do when we're not the center of culture? Would people immediately sort of give up their faith, freak out, and fly away? Or would we really be followers even in the midst of an oppressive government, etc.? Those are interesting questions. And as I alluded to yesterday, we've been in a state in the United States where the church was at least neutral to positive in the eyes of the culture. That is shifting rapidly. It is now what I would call neutral to beginning to be hostile. And so there's implications for how we're going to do ministry and for our own attitude in how we engage our culture. So how did we get here? Christendom, attractional, and missional, these three congregational paradigms. You might recognize some of this as I share it. It's not that any of these are necessarily a hard and fast shift because you'll see churches that are still in the Christendom model. You'll find attractional, missional, all in the landscape, probably even here in this valley area. 
We could probably find each of these. But you're going to notice that this is where things are shifting. And I think you'll be, it'll help you understand the churches that you're in, the churches that perhaps your kids or grandkids are part of. It'll help you locate where are we and what God is up to. So the first one is this paradigm number one, the Christendom paradigm. And it, it's been said this way. At the start of the 21st century, the church in North America finds itself in a very different place than it used to be. Fifty years ago, the church enjoyed a privileged place in our culture. Many people went to church. The social pressure encouraged good people to belong to a church. People respected the church. The culture listened to the church. Politicians and government officials wanted the church on their side. The church was very much at the center of public life. Church life was booming. The world, that world, I would say, no longer exists. Now, we can be sad and there can be mourning, and I think that's appropriate. The challenge is if our mourning turns to anger, then we lose our right to really evangelize well. God is still on the throne. On the flight here, I was actually reading a book by Alistair Begg where he unpacks the first seven chapters of the book of Daniel as a paradigm for if we're going to learn to live in hostile territory, Daniel and his friends are a great paradigm for how to do that well. I encourage you to read it. It's a great book called Brave. It's only about 100 pages. It's a great kind of storyline through the, the first seven chapters of Daniel's great encouragement because we're living in an increasingly hostile culture. Rip Van Winkle, the church is kind of like Rip Van Winkle, waking up from a 20-year nap. We're living in the same country, but it's a completely different world. We don't recognize it, and we're not sure what to do about it. That was Clark Cowden from the San Diego Presbytery said that. Todd Bolsinger, who teaches at Fuller Seminary, said this. He said, sociologists and theologians refer to this recently past period as Christendom the 1,700-year-long era with Christianity at the privileged center of Western cultural life. Christendom gave us things like the blue laws and the Ten Commandments in school. It gave us under God and the Pledge of Allegiance and exhortations to Bible reading in the national newspapers. Now, based on my age, some of that doesn't even make sense to me. I'm like, really, that really happened? Now, in Texas, we still have one residual blue law that I've been, been hearing about, and uh, you can't buy alcohol on Sunday morning at a grocery store until at noon, it's okay. At five minutes to noon, it's a no-go. And it's funny to watch people who don't know what they're doing in Texas. They got, you know, they're going to buy a bottle of wine for tonight because they're shopping in the morning. They're like, oh, got to wait five more minutes, Right? Blue laws, and, and, it, and it, they mean well. It was the idea was we're going to you know, legalize some things to emphasize Sunday and worship and Sabbath. Wow, that's long gone. Sunday now is like a hard-working day for a lot of people to serve those of us who want to go have fun on Sundays. It's now called Sunday Fun Day. Used to be Sabbath Day. Boy, our culture's changed a lot. Christendom characteristics are things like this. When you would have sermons on the front page of the New York Times. Anybody remember this? Because I don't, but as I look in the history, they would literally print sermons from well-respected pastors in the newspaper. 
as part of putting out you know, God's word. Pastors, of course, at presidential inaugurations, that's still there. I'm curious how long that will last. No sporting events on Wednesday nights in the South? We gotta have youth group. Kids can't be playing sports on Wednesday. How far we've come today. Soccer leagues today are all weekend, all the time. When I was a kid playing soccer, it was still just Saturday. When I was a pastor, suddenly families were wrestling with, we can't come on Sunday because our kids got a soccer tournament Sunday morning. The culture doesn't care about church attendance anymore. And of course, blue laws, stores were closed on Sunday, things like that. There was this, this unconscious wedding of the church and society. So the society would support the church. Tax breaks and zoning laws, we've talked about blue laws. There was a public school church cooperation. There was freedom of religion. The culture valued the church. Now, I, living in California, though, I, I've not experienced much of this sort of positive sense as much. When I went back to do a friend's ordination years ago in, in Ohio, you, if you went to this restaurant after church, if you showed your minister's card, you actually got a free lunch. I was shocked by that. What? And it was sort of this encouragement, hey, pastor, bring your congregation to lunch and we'll give you a free lunch. And I thought, this is so different from my experience. Now, living in Texas now, I was shocked a few years ago. I went to the Houston Rodeo for the first time, which was a beautiful event, and ZZ Top played, and it was amazing. But what I noticed was they actually prayed before the event in Jesus' name. That's what I said. I thought, whoa, is this legal? Can they do that? Because I'm so used to California, we're like, whoa, you can't do that. But I'm wondering even in Texas how long that will last. See, the culture's shifting. And these, this freedom of religion as part of our culture, I think, is rapidly going away. The church, of course, would support society in this wedding of the two together because, of course, there's prayers at inaugurations, chaplains in the Senate and in the House, Invocations. I actually joined Rotary Club a few years ago. I figured I need to get out amongst some people who don't know the Lord. I need to meet some city leaders. So I joined a Rotary Club, had lunch with these folks, and they would call me chappy and chaplain and stuff like that. So I found myself suddenly the chaplain of the Rotary Club, and they would still ask me to stand up and pray before lunch. That was a vestige of a time that's going away. Of course, wedding licenses, all of these things are part of church and society working together. 73% uh, was the highest church membership just after World War II. Basically, three out of four people were members of churches in North America right after the Second World War. Attendance was about 50%, but actually on the rolls of churches, you were out of three out of four. Boy, that's different today. Now, Christendom congregations... I mean, there was a, a look, a style, a way of being, right? Churches need to look like churches, right? Got to have the steeples. They have to point upward towards God, right? And steeples pointing upward. We, everybody knows what that iconography means. It, it meant something. Pews were fixed. This all came out of the Reformation, but the idea was fixed pews, and wow, when I was at my church making changes and we even talked about maybe putting in chairs like this, whoa, third rail, don't even go there. Because we were, this is what church is supposed to look like, supposed to feel like. Now, 
I've been to North, sorry, I've been, I've been to South Korea a number of times. I've been to North Korea only across, I was able to go in that little hut between the two Koreas, and I got to walk 15 feet into North Korea, but that's another story. But South Korea is fascinating because so many folks follow Jesus, but the, the style of church is these monstrosities like you see up here, these huge Christendom-looking churches, which is very different culturally from Korean culture, right? This is an import from elsewhere, which I just find interesting. Buildings in Christendom is part of evangelism. The whole idea of you build it, they will come. And in Christendom, if you had a beautiful church on an accessible street and you had a good organ and a good pulpiteer, it would happen. Open the doors, folks would flow in. The cultural pressure of the culture says everybody's got to be in church. And churches, of course, were proud to be the first Methodist, first Baptist, first Presbyterian. All those numbers meant something. Today, when I used to say that I was part of First Baptist Fullerton, the Waitress or the waiter would be like, well, how arrogant to think that you're the first, you know? And I realized that doesn't make any sense in an unchristian culture. But we were proud of those buildings, and we're the first so-and-so in town, and if we build these buildings, they will come. Church buildings in the United States, 1945, $26 million, 1950, 409 million, 1960, a billion. There's a lot of money in building churches all around the country. And Christendom, by David Olson, he said this. He said, in the Christian world, Christendom defined how ministry was done. The needs of its members, the doctrines of the church, and the structure of the institution defined the ministry, the model, and the practice. The pastoral role was to attend to the members and keep the ship running smoothly. That was it. In fact, in many ways, Christendom churches because I had a number of my members of the church that I was pastoring, still had this mindset, my tithes and offerings are the dues to ensure that the pastor will be there in my time of need. It's a transactional relationship. I give to support the church, and the church then performs religious goods and services that I consume, and, that, and especially if I get sick, pastor better be there at my bedside because that's the contract. And pastors were trained a lot in pastoral care, lots of visitation, and we were to keep the thing running smoothly and have great programs and keep everybody engaged and entertained. I would like to say sometimes, I feel like Julie McCoy on the love boat, making sure everybody's just happy as we sail the cruise ship around. That's Christendom. I know that's a little harsh. Are we still friends? Are we going to be okay? I'm trying to give us reality check, because reality's our friend, right? We've got to know what's going on. But this was the Christendom model. Everyone assumed, basically, in Christendom, pretty much everybody knew the faith, basically. It was in the culture. It was in the church. They were wedded together. Traditional worship was the norm. It was inspiring. It was pastoral. The preaching was often fairly formal. And brand and place was important. People talked about, I go to the First Methodist, I'm a, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Presbyterian. There, there was very much a sense of identity in a particular branding of Christendom. When my colleague many years ago came to Fullerton, he and I both finished seminary at the same time, 
I took the Baptist church. He ended up in the Presbyterian church. He told me that one of the key elders led him around the town the first day, drove around and said, okay, see that Baptist church? See that Methodist church? That's the enemy over there. We got we to gotta win those folks and get them in here. To which my colleague very adeptly said, see that park over there? You see Disneyland over there? See that beach over there? That's the challenge. Not winning these people from other tribes into us. And that idea was radical to that elder. These different tribes, the the nuances of doctrine really, really mattered. And when we fussed and fought over them, we were very clear about the demarcation. It's interesting, when I first came to my church now in 1996, in Fullerton, California, E.V. Free Fullerton, of course, was a big church. Chuck Smith had retired, and the new pastor had come in, and he invited a number of us local pastors to come. And suddenly, here we are in a room with some Baptists and some E.V. Free folks and some Vineyard folks and some Calvary Chapel folks and just a whole gaggle of different folks from different tribes that, if you really thought about it, we probably still had nuances of difference but we were more united. We wanted to see Jesus lifted up in our city. And we didn't care if you were cessationist or not or women in ministry or not. Or, right? we, we just let some of that stuff go because we want to see Jesus made famous in Fullerton. And I thought there's a shift going on because pastors in years ago would have fought at coffees like that and prayer times about nuances of doctrine. Now we're saying, Let's walk together because we're on mission together. Social fellowship in Christendom was really important too. Of course, the church itself was kind of like the third place. Right, you had your home and your work and the third place was the church. You went to the various programs throughout the week and pastors were actually gone sometimes five, six nights a week running various programs and places, that was normal. Now, Starbucks wants to be your third place. Used to be the church, see? And members were taught to serve the church. Now, when I came to my church in Fullerton, 1996, I'll just give you an interesting story about governance. Our, our, our document, our governance documents were like 40, 50 pages thick. We had six boards. We had a church of 125 people, but we had 60 people in leadership. Anybody been in church like this? Okay, so so literally Monday night, the first Monday of the month, I would go to all the board meetings at the, you know, 10 minutes each to see what they were doing. The next Monday night, we would send representatives from those meetings to the council which it was 25 people, including the moderator, the vice moderator, and the parliamentarian with the books out on how to run the meeting with the Roberts rules, and everybody reported in where we were going and what was going on. And, I, and with 30, 40 pages of documentation, parliamentary procedures, I realized <laughs> we're going nowhere. Everybody's got a kingdom Everybody's fighting for dollars in their particular area. Oh, and it gets crazier because each one of my staff were owned by a board. 
So my youth pastor reported to the Christian Ed board, the music minister reported to the music board, and, and, I, and I was beholden to the trustee board because they had the money. That's where it was, the action really was, right? It was the most crazy-making environment. And every wound that the church had ever had was written in their documentation to prevent it from ever happening again. And what it meant was, management is ministry. And people were taught, you, you, are, you raise up, you give money to the church, you serve in all the programs, and then you rotate amongst these boards, and ministry is management of this system. And I was like, wow. And I read my New Testament, and I'm like, this sure looks different. What happened? The church is not about equipping people for mission. It was about equipping people to serve the entity, the body itself, the institution. So pastors are there for you in a chaplaincy model. Their job was to run around and make everybody, you know, have tea with everybody and checking with everybody and lots of, you know, funeral visitations, not funeral, doing funerals, yes, but also hospital visitations, of course, weddings, funerals, baptisms. These were the roles. It was a chaplaincy model in a church context. Every pastor was the chaplain. And discipleship in Christendom, it's really not about following Jesus. It's about learning knowledge. You go to various elective classes because character was essentially shaped in the home in a culture that already had basic Christian values established in the culture. Okay? So the idea about belonging was an institutional concept. And the rise of the parachurch was they were realizing, but discipleship wasn't happening well in the churches, so other organizations rose up to assist, if you will. In Christendom, evangelism was essentially, was a ticket to heaven. Most congregations assumed that people knew what the story was. Pastors were basically the ones who were to do evangelism. You might have an evangelism committee in the church, but pastors were essentially trained to do the evangelism, to sell the deal, to preach the gospel, do the altar calls, and to do visitation and meet with people and share the gospel. That was not assumed amongst the, the members of the church. Pastors and professional leaders did the evangelism. However, on the mission side, global mission was very important. But the assumption was that we've basically won America, now we need to reach the rest of the world. So big dollars are raised, missionaries are sent, it, they're valued highly going across the ponds, as we like to say. But essentially the idea was America's been reached, now we've got to send folks around the world. And the preaching in Christendom, of course, was, was very inspirational. The idea was it filled your tank for the next week. Some would say it was a little bit light on content, but heavy inspiration. And there was an assumption that pretty much everybody in the, in the building knew the scriptures and knew the stories, so we're certainly, all we're doing is reminding you of what you already know. And we just kind of fire you up again and inspire you and make you feel good and send you. That was the assumption in Christendom is everybody knows the story. When I began preaching in the late 90s, I realized there's a good number of folks who don't have a clue 
what these Bible books are, where they are, any of this stuff. And so I, my preaching shifted from just purely assuming everybody knows the story to having to explain the background each time I preached. A little bit of explain. Who's Paul? Who's James? Even who's Jesus? This is the book of Job, not the book of Job. We had to explain this kind of stuff, right? So we have to tilt people because they don't know. Now, Christendom, of course, was very building-centered. Buildings were thought of as sacred space, and they were needed for large fellowship. And essentially, the idea was we're going to encounter lost people, if there are any in our city, that they would happen at church because there was a social pressure to go to church. Now, as a guitar player, I have to tell you a funny story. When I first got to my church, I, end, I discovered this sacred space thing very quickly. I didn't understand this. So as a 30-year-old young pastor with his electric guitar in tow, I had set up, I was in the worship team because I was actually having to validate to my church that a worship team is okay. Because in the mid-90s, they weren't sure that that was okay. And so I joined my own contemporary worship team to actually let them know it's going to be okay. We had a very traditional service, and we had this burgeoning other kind of contemporary-ish service. And after this worship service, when everybody was gone, and I was exhausted from the whole morning of ministry, all the teaching, I just got this bright idea that I would flip on the amp and turn up the gain and let it rip. I just was in this, I'm just going to jam for a while and let all my tension flow, right? Nobody's around. It's a great cavernous building. This is going to sound like Wembley Stadium, and I let it rip, right? What I didn't know was there was an executive minister that uh, happened to pop by that church just at the right moment when I am letting some pretty distorted guitar chords flow out of my amplifier. He came walking down the back of the church. I could just see on his face he was going to let that young whippersnapper, because I'm sure he's assuming it's a 16-year-old kid who's desecrating the temple with this ungodly noise until he realizes it's the senior pastor. To which he was like, what? Stopped. Oh, rewind. But his face told me everything. He was shocked, horrified, and he never let my colleague know about it. His son was actually the minister in charge of my area. And boy, he was concerned about Wilshire Avenue Community Church in Fullerton. Because sacred space and the idea that this is where God resides. That's actually a very Old Testament idea, isn't it? It's very temple-like. But the idea of the, of the sacred space is very important. New Testament teaches that the body of Christ, the people are the new temple. But there's still an idea of a very sacred space. In the early church, of course, they had no buildings. They had no printed materials. They had no internet. I love this picture of the Chinese underground church, this conditions in which they do discipleship and learning. It, it is everything that we don't know anything about. And yet the church flourishes because it's not necessarily about the buildings and the programs. Since 1965, Christendom churches have been struggling to reach the next generation. The next generation simply wasn't coming any longer, and the Christendom model, especially in the 70s and 80s, began to, really to fade in many ways. Of course, in the 1960s, the whole U.S. culture changed. Many of you watched this up close. It became anti-institutional. 
There's a rebellion against power. Of course, the sexual revolution exploded, rock and roll music exploded, the dominance of television, an unpopular war in Vietnam, and race and gender issues exploded on the scene, and suddenly the culture was radically different. And Christendom churches did not know how to navigate the new normal. So Christendom failed to understand this new culture that was now anti-institutional. It was relaxed in its dress. Suddenly there were Christians who were grabbing guitars and actually just taking the book of Psalms and putting them together and creating a whole new genre. That just felt way out there back then. Seems normal now, but at the time, that was, is this even godly? Can you go to church with bell-bottoms? I mean, these were the questions. And guys like Chuck Smith and others who realized all these teenagers with all their beards and their unwashed clothing and all, they stink and all that, but boy, they need Jesus. And he let them come to church even barefoot. And he took hell for it. And then he grew a whole movement of churches around reaching a new generation. The challenge always is this. What is God up to that seems radical and crazy and perhaps not even healthy that becomes the norm a generation later? And I'm asking the same question today. What is God up to right now that threatens me as a leader that in 30 years from now will seem normal, and of course it was so obvious, but, but God's up to something. I don't want to be blind to it. Does that make sense? I want to, Lord, what do you, what's the next thing? Because the Bible says I'm, I'm always doing a new thing because God's on the move. God's on mission. And he's going to do what he's going to do to reach people. Okay, Christendom, you get it. Some of you have been there. It's fading. Then comes the attractional model. How are we doing on time? We're still good. The attractional church is now in response to the declining Christendom church. It's a response to suddenly a whole new generation of hippie kids and folks who are not interested in church any longer. Many of the folks they were attracting, though, were really de-churched kids. They'd been to church with mom and dad or grandpa and grandma, and they were like, I'm done with that. It's just not cool. It's not my culture. I don't get it. It's from a different world. And so a bunch of entrepreneurial pastors said it's time to reform how we're going to do church. So the attractional model exploded. It was aimed essentially at baby boomers who were drifting, of course, from the church. It was really about, you know, creating a healthy, big, booming church that people would literally drive right past other ones. I've heard phrases like, if the church is alive, it's worth the drive. Right? The idea of a local church, like your neighborhood church, your congregational church wasn't the thing anymore. Man, if there's a big, booming church 30 miles away, you go there. And you may drive past 50 other ones on the way. Very entrepreneurial pastors. These leaders were not necessarily trained in just how to run an institution and, and be patent do pastoral care. They were interested in dissecting and understanding the culture and creating a whole new model that would resonate with a whole new generation. And they were going to preach the gospel in a new way. So here's some famous names who are now actually getting old, but at the time, they were the cutting edge. Chuck Smith began Calvary Chapel. Bill Hybels, of course, in Willow Creek in Chicago. Rick Warren around the corner here in Saddleback Valley. 
Walt Callistead and Community Church of Joy in Arizona, and John Wimber from the Vineyard. The, these were folks that coming out of a whole other set of experiences, creating a whole new kind of church for a whole new generation. Walt, you and I, we cut our teeth learning how to do this model. They were targeting baby boomers who were under-churched, de-churched, or bored with church, or all the above. I remember going to listen to Bill Hybels. He didn't end well, but in his glory days, if you will. I mean, he talked about, like, church, we, we can do better than this. Like, let's make it better. Why does it have to be so boring and dull and uninspiring? Let's make church better. So what do people want? What do baby boomers want? And let's give it to them, and we'll get the gospel in there too. That's how they thought. Okay? So, it was driven, though, to appeal to an expressed consumerism that baby boomers were living into. Baby boomers are suddenly growing up, getting their hair cut, enjoying actually working for a company that paid them well. They All of a sudden, they got 401Ks. They started driving Beamers. And all of a sudden, their hairiness, you know, disappeared, and they got clean cut, and suddenly, they want things excellent. And church said, okay, we'll meet you there. And we'll, in the words of Burger King, we'll have it your way. Okay? The, ch the challenging thing about that is there's an unconscious wedding uh, of church with consumerism now. Now, it's attractive in how it fits with the culture. It is clearly about making sure that everything looks, smells, and is excellent and wonderful. There's always this joke about there can be no more church basement smell. Church bathrooms are also notorious for being old and moldy, right? No more. It's got to be top of the line. Going to church should feel like going to Morton Steakhouse. It better be nice in every detail. And I'm not really saying that having moldy bathrooms is a good idea anyway. So the idea of making church better, it resonates. I, I get that. But what's interesting is when Walt and I were being trained for pastors, I mean, there, we get manuals about checklists you know, sweet-smelling bathrooms, parking's got to be a certain amount, so many cars per this and that. I mean, we, the sound system has to have a certain decibels, has to have a certain range. I mean, we would get, if you, again, it was kind of, if you build it this way with all the cool accoutrements, it's going to rock and it's going to be cool. And I'm speaking of cool, cool youth ministry was all about that. You hire the cool youth pastor, give him money and a bunch of, you know, give him a rock band, give him whatever it takes, and make sure it's very very cool. Safe nurseries, by the way, I was just laughing about that. So my wife and I were talking about this the other day. When we got to our church in 1996, they still had institutional cribs that looked like cages. Anybody remember this? Like you sort of lock all the kids behind these little bars. It was super weird. I walk in there, I'm like, whoa, this is not going to fly. We gutted all those out the first week. I caught hell for that, but I mean, it's like, no, we can't. The, the next clientele will never stand putting their kid in a cage, right? The nurseries had to be bright and airy and smell sweet and have little rockers and beautiful and painted beautiful, all this stuff. And so we start painting the nurseries, and guess what happens? The 30-somethings that I thought were going to be my friends were horrified. How dare you change my church? 
I grew up in that nursery, and Psych Ward Green is good enough for me. It's good enough for everybody. You get the idea? Well, you fought some of these battles, right? We church leaders, we've been through all this stuff. Worship wars and youth ministry battles and painting nursery battles. Oh, my goodness. The attractional assumptions were this. We got to present the best of everything. We got to have something for everyone. The idea of church as smorgasbord, it's a buffet. We'll have stuff for everybody to consume and enjoy. And the questions, though, become every staff meeting is how many people came and how do we get them back and even more. The success was determined by three B's. We call them the killer B's. Bodies, bucks, and buildings. Or the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. And you measured success by literally population, how many, how many came to a program, and how do we get more next time? Every staff meeting felt like we hit this bar, and now we got to raise it again. Everything's got to push. Because if you want them by this level of excellence, you got to retain them by pushing it another notch up. Well, that may be great for the consumer. It is exhausting to the staff to live into those expectations of performance week after week. And the train wreck of leaders that get blown up behind all of that is atrocious. The dark stories that I get to hear as one who coaches pastors and the healing that required to, to, to get them back to loving Jesus and his bride after they've been blown up in these kinds of high-pressure corporate situations, it, it's, it's a real thing. Very attractive, again, programs to meet every need. It's very staff-driven. If you need something, you pay for it, you hire somebody, and it's very top-down. Pastors are leaders. Pastors learn management and leadership techniques. We learn how to push. We learn how to manage. We learn how to manage for excellence. But it wears on the staff and the leaders, right? Some of you have been... How many of you experienced some of that and just the, the, the leadership fatigue that comes with that? Does that resonate? Some of you, yeah. I lived in some of that. A lot of pastors start talking about burnout after a few years because that model can actually be very destructive to the soul. Of course, the programming in, in these attractional churches aimed at felt needs. What are, what are people feeling? What are their hurts, hang-ups, and habits? And how do, we, how do we touch those issues? We've got all kinds of places for you to engage the church from all kinds of different avenues beyond just the Sunday morning worship. There's a competition amongst congregations Pastors get together and notice that this church is growing at this pace and we gotta, we gotta beat those guys and we're gonna do better. And there's a competitive spirit amongst leaders for whose bigger product, whose big whiz-bang thing's going better than somebody else. New ministries begin to start up. And I don't think these are bad. I think these are quite good. But they're all, again, in response to the felt needs of people. Divorce recovery, grief recovery, alpha. Actually very good ministries. But this idea of what, where are people at? How do we meet them where they're at? And pastoral care then is, is done not so much by the pastoral staff because you can't meet hundreds and thousands of people. So you delegate that amongst small groups 
And you have Stephen's ministries in other places to train others to care for others. And the joke was with these mega churches, if the senior pastor came to your hospital bed, you were really in trouble because <laughs> they only got to a few people. And it was probably like you're on your way out. If, uh, if, if Rick Warren came to your bed, <laughs> you were going out, <laughs> right? Like that was sort of the joke. But, but pastoral care was spread amongst the people. And Christendom churches are, you know, they're struggling with why isn't the pastor coming to see me? And the pastor's thinking, your small group came. That's the church. And this, this challenge of expectations, the role of pastor, right? In mega churches and in Christendom, sorry, attractional model, pastors running this big organization, they can't get to all those former things like care and tea and coffee and homes. We don't, we have, there's no time for that. Pastors then get isolated from the people. They start having green rooms in the back where they hang out together and they go out and perform and they retreat. It's a very different model. But here's what we've discovered. And by the way, when I was in the middle of all this, I thought it was wonderful. Like big churches, God's clearly at work. The more is better. Everything's booming. This is amazing. But what we began to realize later is we were not forming people to, to die to self. We were actually training people how to enhance themselves. Many of the sermon series or the Monday night programming, etc., was how to have great marriages and how to raise great kids and how to have a successful career. And so we're using Bible texts to augment people's lives to make them healthy, wealthy, and wise, if you will. And so people are not coming to serve and follow Jesus to literally empty themselves and become more like Jesus. They're, they're coming to get, to, to get, how do I get the American dream and better and bigger and faster and stronger? Now, I'm, I made a big sweeping statement. I'm not saying all churches were bad. I'm just, but if you listen to sermon, the, the assumption is the felt needs of people will bring them in. And the idea was, as we minister, we're hoping to make some disciples. Another church, so the idea was, get a crowd, and eventually you'll work your way to some disciples. The group I'm with is actually challenging that, saying perhaps we should make some disciples, real disciples, and a church will emerge. It's a different approach. But in this model, get crowds, get people, do whatever it takes to win people to come to our events. And we discovered later that the consumerism of the whole model is not neutral. It actually plays into the very gospel we're preaching. And there's some challenges there. Evangelism, in these contexts, there were fast decisions through great preaching. There were slower decisions through programs. And Alpha and programs like that, which I think actually is a great program, was also doing focused decisions. So evangelism was happening in a multiplicity of ways. But discipleship, again, was not happening. In fact, the crazy part is, Bill Hybels, who taught a whole generation of leaders how to do church. He had a church of 25,000 people. He had a network of the Willow Creek Association across North America, across Europe, training churches how to do church in this way. They, after many years of ministry, he did his own internal study. They called it the Reveal study. Remember this? Reveal came out, I want to say, 10, 15 years ago. It was an internal study to figure out, are we actually making fully devoted followers of Christ? Because that was their motto. But are people really becoming fully and devoted followers of Jesus? 
And as they brought an outside firm in to study the organization and to interview people, they discovered some sad realities, that people were busy, people were burned out, many people were about to leave the church, and their values hadn't changed much since their conversion. And the lesson was, you can be involved in the church machine and still not be much like Jesus. Your values could still be quite pagan. You'd been baptized, you, you professed Jesus, you, you were on the church rolls, and you were busy in the machine, but your character hadn't shifted that much. To their credit, they published the report. They could have deep-sixed that very easily because they were promoting this model is the way of church. This is the way it should be. And I want to say the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. But when they published that study, they were brave to say, you know, we've got big crowds, but we're not making disciples. And that was one of those turning points in my own soul of something needs to change. So these mega churches that were definitely this attractional model, the idea was if you had over 2,000 in worship, you were a mega church. In 19, prior 1970, there were about 200 of those across the United States. As of a few years ago, there's over 1,300. It'll be interesting to see after the COVID experience how many are still there. The, the interesting thing about megachurches is this. They attract a lot of people. They're very hard to replicate. It's very hard to plant a megachurch because the skill set required is such a narrow bandwidth of people can do that. A guy like Rick Warren who can plant a megachurch, he could run a whole country. <laughs> he has an executive skill set that is in, he's in the elite category of leadership. Most, and so the challenge was we young pastors, we're all like, oh, we're going to be Rick Warren. We're going to use the diamonds. We're going to do the whole thing. We're going to teach the 101 classes. And I'm sure perhaps in churches you've been in, they foisted all that upon you. And boom, we're going to explode and be 25,000. It didn't work. That was a unique situation in a unique setting with a very unique leader. And the idea that we can sort of replicate these things is really a misnomer and is really misaligned, misguided. Here's what megachurches look like if you've ever been in one. Here's one from Southeast Christian in Louisville, 17,000 people, quite a theater. The next one is uh, Ed Young, 22,000 in Houston, Texas, Second Baptist, quite a building. Andy Stanley with 23,000 down in, in uh, Georgia. Ed Young Jr., 24,000 people in Grapevine, Texas. Joel Osteen at 43,500. That used to be where the, I think the Rockets used to play in this auditorium. They bought it as a church. I went there on a Wednesday night a few years ago. I met a guy at a Christmas party who was the lead guitarist for the worship band, and he invited us to come on a Wednesday night, and I wanted to go to the show and see what this was all about. Joel and his wife happened to be there, which was kind of intriguing. And so we sat in this mammoth thing and watched the show, and I was like, there's some really cool things and there's some really odd things about this thing. And I won't go into all that, but it, it, anyway. It, but it was an amazing to see how a major church with a major attractional ministry, what it looks like behind the scenes. Church of the Highlands, 48,000 people in Birmingham, Alabama, 17 sites. Of course, we're seeing lots of multi-site today. That's another expression of the attractional kind of, it's almost like the McDonaldization of church. You get a good thing, you franchise it, and you replicate it quickly. If the leader 
If you can't get a person who can preach to, you know, more than 500 or 1,000 people, then you have the sermon built in, piped in. So you have one teacher across multi-sites with local church pastors with skill sets that are better for pastoral care. That's a new model. I think there's strengths and weaknesses to that. That's another conversation. Listen to what a Community Church of Joy, Walt Kallestad said after running his church, again, with multi-thousands. He said this. He said, so our church strategy revolved around the gravitational force of entertainment for evangelism, right? We hired the best musicians we could afford. We used marketing principles and programming specialists for the sake of the gospel. Adv attendance skyrocketed. More people meant more staff, more programs, more facilities, more land, and of course the need for more money. We became a program-driven church attracting consumers looking for the latest and the greatest religious presentations. And he goes on, after pouring more than 25 years of my life into this church, I knew we weren't developing disciples who were taking up their crosses to follow Jesus. We'd produced consumers, I love his illustration, like Pac-Man gobbling up religious experiences, navigating a maze, but going nowhere in particular. Too many were observing the show, but not meeting God. They meandered in and out of relationships, but they weren't in any real community. They sought their spiritual fix, but they didn't give themselves fully to Christ. Wow. 25 years of building a megachurch, and he comes to realize this is the fruit of that experience. So, a new paradigm emerges in response to that. Missional. And we'll end here. The missional church is a church that thinks of itself in a missionary encounter with the surrounding culture. We don't assume that people know the faith at all. We know the lost will not come into our church building. We know if we build a building, they're not coming in anyway. It doesn't mean we're going to do bad church or we're going to have, you know, schlocky facilities, but we also know that if we build it, they will not come. And so the idea is we must meet them on their territory because they're not coming into ours. Remember John 20, 21, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So missional churches grab that sending paradigm. They take it very seriously. We are a sent people. We are sent into the world. And we are to live the gospel where people live, work, and play, not assuming they're going to come into our sacred spaces, but we're going to go into their normal life spaces and be Jesus to them. This is the missional church. It began really with the thinking by Leslie Newbegin. He was a missionary, I believe in India, and he was there for a long, long time. And when he returned back to England in the 1970s, he said, wow, he said England is a pagan culture, pagan society. And the development of a truly missional encounter with this very tough form of paganism is the greatest intellectual and practical task that is now facing our church. So England was Christian when he left, and when he returned, you know, decades later, he said England is pagan, and it's a tough nut to crack. 
So he began to wrestle, and, and um, Tim Keller lays this out in the book Center Church. He said, society has become secular and idolatrous. We worship reason above all else. We're going to need a whole new apologetic, a whole new way of reaching people in a way that they'll understand. We're going to have to equip the laity, the people who are not professional Christians, just everyday Christians who follow Jesus. We're going to have to equip them for a missional engagement with lost people. The church itself will need to live as a counterculture to the culture. Because the, in the old days, Christendom and the culture were wedded together. Now the church is a countercultural people against an increasingly secular pagan culture. And we're going to have to avoid bringing in the stuff that's not healthy, the syncretism. We're going to have to avoid that, but we're also going to have to avoid being irrelevant. So we're going to have to do this dance of figuring out how to connect with the culture but not become it. Jesus said stuff like being in the world but not of it. And that's a great tension to live in. The missional church wants to live right on the edge of that, in it, but not of it. Will Willimon said, I find much to be commended in the image of pastor as a missionary, or more accurately, a lead missionary or an equipper of the missionaries. We are no longer keeping house in an essentially hospitable and receptive culture, if we ever were. He's suggesting now it's time that the pastoral team sees itself as equippers to train missionaries to live on mission, which sounds like the book of Ephesians to me. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers who will train up and raise up people into maturity to live as missionaries where people live, work, and play. So Daryl Guter wrote a great book called Missional Church. He said this, that if Western societies have become post-Christian mission fields, then how can traditional churches become missional churches, literally churches on mission? Tim Keller said it this way, a Christian is not a spiritual consumer coming in to get his or her emotional needs met and going home. A missional church, then, is one that trains and encourages its people to be on mission as individuals and as a body. So when my team does work called the missional pathway, this is exactly what we're doing. We're training a church how to discover individuals' personal mission and a corporate mission for its church to serve the same lost people over and over. We like to say life on life so that we develop relationships, serve them, and literally be Jesus to them. And our expectation is you don't bring them to church to have the pastor seal the deal for their conversion. You lead them to Christ. And we'll train you how to do that. You be Jesus to them in their world. That's the missional church. So defining missional, Minitrea wrote a great book called Shaped by God's Heart. He said this, a missional church is a reproducing community of authentic disciples being equipped as missionaries sent by God to live and proclaim his kingdom in their world. Wow, that's a shift from where we've been. I don't think it's a bad shift. It's just a shift. So here's what missional churches today if you're talking to young church planters today who are creating missional churches, this is where they're coming from. 
The threshold for membership is high. Like to be a member of these churches, you actually commit to a number of very serious things about your time, talent, and treasure because we're going we're gonna to literally be boot camp because we're training to be operatives for the kingdom of God to live on mission. And, and if you join, they expect you to live at a high level and they're going to keep you accountable because they see this as very serious business. Our city's going to hell and we're going to train our people to engage hell with water pistols. You get the idea? We're going out there. We're going for broke. And if you're going to join us, you really got to sign on. Centrality of personal discipleship. Everybody's learning how to literally become like Jesus, to purge the old character out of our soul, to get rid of dysfunctional relational patterns, to literally live in the power of the Spirit on mission in the world. We're going to equip people to evangelize in social and vocational networks. We're going to live what is called apostolically, as sent people. You see your workplace as a place where you'll bring the kingdom of God. You start praying for all of your colleagues and your co-workers. You're there to listen and to love and to share Jesus when it comes up, when it's appropriate. But you're going to see your workplace, your school place, wherever, as a place for you to expand the kingdom. That's a missional mindset. And what we're discovering is if you go into your workplace and in your friend places and your fun places and where you live, work, and play, you'll find that Jesus' spirit has already been there preparing these people to engage you. God's already at work there. We just got to join him. But it's a paradigm shift. Instead of serving a church building, it's about the building getting us ready to go out. So we're going to simplify the church. New churches in the missional paradigm have a lot less programs. They get very focused on training, and that's all they do. You will not find a program every night of the week. You will not find pastors out more than once or twice a week. That's it. They also value pastors who actually care for their own families. How many pastors do I know in the attractional world whose families got blown up because they were giving to the church or in the Christendom model too? They gave it all. They were out every night of the week for everybody else and they lost their own kids, their own marriages. This is not good. Pagans are actually curious, does this Jesus stuff actually matter in your home? If your home life's a train wreck, they're not going to buy it. And that goes for pastors too. So we simplify the church. We place kingdom concerns first. Membership in a church like this is a call to missions. You, you belong, you believe, you behave, and then you're sent. And you'll notice if you're coming into a missional church, we also don't assume that you're going to believe as the first thing. Most people who become Christians in missional churches hang around and are actually part of the community before they actually make a decision to follow Jesus. What that means is in missional churches, you've got lots of pagan people doing funny things that make the Christians uncomfortable, but God's at work there, and we have to welcome them. It doesn't mean that we validate and love everything that they're about, but we welcome them to belong before they believe, and then the behave comes later. So it makes church really messy, and that's okay. Jesus was ministering in a messy world. It'll be all right. It's a good thing. Discipleship in church paradigms. So Christendom did not emphasize discipleship very much. 
Attractional church focused a lot on pastors and programs. Missional church says we all have to learn to be disciples to live on mission well. So they're very discipleship-driven. Character-shaping is absolutely key. I've been reading a lot of work recently in the area of, of spiritual disciplines, in which we're going to talk about tomorrow morning. I'm also reading in the whole area of neuroscience because they're discovering some really interesting things about how the brain actually works and how God actually you know, created our bodies for spirituality and how do we make the right brain and the left brain healthy so we have a healthy spirituality. It's a fascinating world to get into. I mean, he made our bodies this way. And is our discipleship left brain and right brain? How do we get that together? That's a whole other world. This is the next book I'll write someday, right? But that's, that's a whole other world we've got to start thinking about. So here's what I know, this. It's a remedial approach for repair. We're going to have to start with us. Have we been discipled? And if not, it's time to get discipled. And so we leaders actually have to be, be discipled and disciple others as we help people live truly like Jesus on mission. It means leaders have to move patiently in the congregation. One of the things I learned in trying to do some of this was I found a really good discipleship process. It was a nine months at a time process. And I would take 12 people at a time through this thing. I did it for 10 years. And I eventually had some other folks leading these groups, but they were every week for two hours, and we would discern our life maps, we'd discern our hurts and our pains and our hang-ups, we would wrestle with healing, we'd wrestle with the kingdom, we'd wrestle with mentoring, we'd wrestle with spiritual disciplines, and we literally were forming and reforming people, and we did it slowly over time, because that's what requires real change, is slow engagement with the Spirit and the Scriptures over time in community, not in pseudo-community where it's like, how you doing? Fine. How's the weather? Great. How about them Rams versus the Buccaneers versus the Bengals, whatever? No, no, no. It's like, let's really walk together, and we're going to walk through our stuff, and we're going to get rid of our sin, and we're going to start to form our character more like Jesus. That's hard work, but it produces people where the Spirit exudes life and joy, and that's what we begin to do year after year. Interesting story, though. When you start doing that, leaders, eventually you have a real good pool of people to pull for your leadership. And eventually we decide you can't be in leadership until you've been through at least a year of that process. Because I don't trust anybody that I don't know their story. I don't know the bloody stuff and the messy stuff and the junky stuff. And I want to know what God's been up to before I trust you to shepherd other people and to give wisdom and direction for our church. So we're not putting warm bodies on boards. You've you got to like literally be a disciple if you're going to lead his church. High threshold. And the church got healthy after doing that. So, as we conclude, what's clearer? What questions are emerging? And now what? Let's take a few minutes. Q&A, yeah? We do that? What are you thinking about? I've thrown a whole lot of stuff at you. Is it? Syncretism? Yeah, so how do we, how do we live in the culture but not take the, the, uh, the bad stuff of culture into our church? 
Right? How, do we, how do we be pure in the gospel, and, and yet how do we take the things that are okay from the culture, the world, systems, whatever, how do we keep the bad stuff out, and do we even know the difference? Is our leadership biblical? It may have management techniques, but it's also, we're going to avoid certain pagan ideas. There's all kinds of stuff we're going to wrestle with and be clear about, if that makes sense. Good question. Others? Wow. Are you asleep? Was it okay? No? Are your brains just sort of firing? Yes, sir. just lives it. And what's the fruit of his ministry? What's the fruit? Is, are people actually responding positively to that? Isn't that amazing? It's okay. Yep. As I shared yesterday, you know, what would it be like if we were the church that was known for praying for people? And the Christians, instead of being these uptight people who were all angry all the time, if we were actually people who loved and prayed and blessed people. That's a missional engagement, missional approach. What are you thinking about? Are you overwhelmed? Encouraged? You see hope in this somewhere? See, I think there is. See, God's, God's on the move. It's just going to look different. We're just going to have to get used to the idea that it's a new day. It's a new culture. God still loves North America. I mean, I think it pains him, <laughs> the stuff that's happening in our culture. But he wants to redeem it. Now, we're going to talk about missional mindset more on Wednesday morning and some of the paradigms required to get some of that going. And so we're going to be coming back to some of these themes. Tonight, we're going to talk about discipleship. We're going to do some theology tonight. Now, what it means to literally walk with Jesus and the gospel and, and, and different kinds of gospels that are out there. So we'll do that tonight. Tomorrow we'll look at the disciplines of the spiritual life. And then tomorrow night we're going to talk about intercultural evangelism. Because the reality is people are coming from all different paradigms today. And we're going to have to have an approach to evangelism that respects where they're coming from. So we'll look at that tomorrow night. And then uh, Wednesday we'll get into uh, some actual ways to live on mission right where you live, work, and play. Okay? Anybody else? Last question. Yes, sir. Can you stand up, Tom, so people can hear you? Yeah, go. Let's do that again. Yeah, start over with your question with the, with the microphone, so we can all hear. Okay. Um, Ron. Yeah, okay, so it took you 18 years yeah. to develop and move towards the direction you saw the church needed to go. And part of that probably was your learning curve, too. But how it. do you recommend for a church to uh, approach that? How long should it take them to expect to see some changes? I mean, yeah. you can't do stuff overnight. without You can't do them. stuff overnight. Good question. So, um, yeah, you heard me. I was there 18 years. I would say, it, it was, and you're right, part of the challenge was I was on a learning curve myself. The first 10 years, I was trying to change a church from Christendom to attractional, I was trying to get them out of the 60s into the 90s, if you will. And then by the time I got them into the 90s, I realized that paradigm was dying too, and it was time to go missional. And so it was, it was this emerging thing the whole time, right? 
It took about 10 years of real struggle to find, I mean, in some ways, sadly, I had to play chicken with some people. Does that make sense? Like, they're looking at me like, I'm going to wait this guy out. And I'm kind of like, well, I'm here until God releases me, so that may be a while. So we just kind of, on a collision course, and eventually some just said, oh, he's not going away, and he's not, he's not changing his mind. I'm out of here, <laughs> which was sad. But it actually freed up some, some momentum. But the key was, when I began to disciple those leaders, and I started doing that about year 10, is when I began to really pour into those leaders. That it was about year 8, I think. Then I noticed a real shift in the church. Because I, the, business, the meetings were not business meetings, they were, they were spirit meetings about the health and the future of our city and our church. They would ask me questions like, hey pastor, how, was, how long has it been since you had 24 hours with Jesus? That's what my elders are asking me. That's spiritual accountability in a healthy way. Instead of, pastor, you better grow this church by next year or you're out of here, right? I mean, it was a whole different deal. Pouring into leaders, leaders begin to pour into others. We create a culture of mentoring around the church so that eventually people got used to the idea that I'm gonna be mentored and others are gonna mentor me and that became part of what it means to be part of that church. So it just took years. Now, younger pastors going into established churches, I'm telling them it's gonna take you at least five years for you to earn the trust and to, and to pivot and it's still gonna be messy. So it, it's, it's, you can't do this stuff on a dime, which is why, sadly, younger leaders would rather just plant a church than deal with trying to turn one. I just had enough patience and long-suffering and or stupidity, I don't know what it was, to sort of stay in there. But, but I loved them, and they loved me, but boy, they resisted. And, um, and I had to learn how to love and the resistance. Interesting, Jesus said stuff like, love your enemies. I had to learn like, how do I love these folks who are followers of Jesus, who are literally opposed to everything I want to do or be about, and yet God loves them? And how do I honor them while still trying to lead in a new direction without dismissing? All that stuff was part of my own character growth along that journey. So I would just say years. It's going to take years. As you spoke, it sounded like a Jesus model. He started with 12. He kind of did, didn't he? I mean, there's something about 12. Sociologists will say that 12 is kind of the perfect number of a group. You get 13 or 14, the dynamics change. You know, there's something about 12, and so I just would take 12 a year. And, but it was funny, you do that for 10 years, you, you, got a, you got a good chunk of people that I've really worked with. Some of the folks I had trained were then able to lead their own groups, so now it was multiplying. And over time, it, the idea of we're going to get into real, our, but see, part of it is we're getting into our stuff. We're getting into our real life. We would literally do a life map in the, for the first three months and look at what God's been up to in the messiness of our lives. Well, you share your life story amongst that group. I mean, it's open life, all of it. The good, bad, the ugly, and what God's been up to. But now we learn to trust each other, and we encourage each other in the character formation of becoming like Jesus. It was profound. Lots of tears. It was heavy, but it was good. So, hope that answered the question. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. What did you use yep. for the discipling? I mean, our pastor's preaching continually trying to change people's hearts, and yes. you wish that was what changed us. There's all these unmet needs. What do you use to do? So here's what we're, the, the, the dark secret is this, that preaching 
is a wonderful tool, but it doesn't do everything we hope and expect it will do, right? So that's why I had to learn, I prepare this sermon, but I also have to do this deep dive with people because really life change happens in community, in safety, in the scriptures, right? So I was using material from an organization called Vantage Point 3, and you can go to Vantage Point 3, and, the, and it's the number three, so Vantage Point 3 and the number three dot org, they actually have some of the best discipleship material. I've been using it for years. And because it's a deep dive into your soul, spiritual formation, they're using Dallas Willard's material, they're using Bobby Clinton from Leadership Emergence Theory. I mean, they're really pulling the heavy stuff in. Scripture, memorization, mentoring, and, and it's, it's fabulous. And they have multiple layers. It's like a three-year deal if you go through the whole thing. Gosh, didn't Jesus like walk with them for like three years? Uh, you know, so it takes, see, but here's the challenge. Pastors, we want this stuff to happen like a microwave because the American culture is about faster and bigger, quicker, and this is crockpot stuff. This is slow burn stuff, right? This is cooking over time, but when you do it over time, it solidifies, tastes better, right? So we pastors have to get out of this model that it's got to be quick and, and we want, you know, results immediately Boy, Jesus walked with 12, and, and 11 worked out. One didn't even work out, right? right? And, and he did it slowly over time in community. I think there's something to that. Yeah. So I had one group started. I raised up, and like sometimes I'd have one or two that were actually good enough to say, I'm gonna, I'll take a group. So we did start multiplying it. At one point, I had multiple layers going with multiple people, and that was really fun, because now you're doing 50 at a time every year instead of just 12, right? But these were multi-year kind of training, and it was, um, but it turned the ship, if you will, which was great. Thank you. I've got time for one more. All good? Come back tonight, yeah? What time is it tonight, seven? Okay, one more. We could talk about traditional and how traditionalists are reluctant to change. Yes. We see the changes that are going on in Sky Valley Park. Right. We see the changes that are going on in the, in the chapel. How do we reach yes. those in the immediate yes. community with, with the time we have, yes. There's a time constraint. We're here for three months, mm -hmm. one month. Mm -hmm. The challenge is this. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not the expression of the church. And that gets confused, right? God's always on, a, on the move to reach a new generation. The more mature we get, my hope is that we'll be able to say it's not about me, it's about reaching somebody else, right? So part of our character is to say it's, it doesn't have to be all my, about me and what I like. And that's a, that's, a, that's, a that's a character, that's an issue of our own soul for Jesus. I mean, I, there's music my kids, I, I realize, it's funny, I was all about, I've got to push the new stuff, and then I realize I'm already old. 
because the stuff that the young kids, I'm like, yuck, that's not real. You've got to listen to music from 1996. That's the real stuff. What these guys did this morning, that's real church music, right? And some of you are like, Dad, that stuff's really new. What are you talking about? And my kids are like, that stuff? That's old. Good grief, Dad, for crying out loud, right? So it's, all, it's a moving river, <laughs> right? And the challenge is we have only a certain amount of cultural stretch in our rubber band. Like we can kind of stretch to a point and then it's like, eh, it's just too much. I just want to be the kind of person who's like, Jesus, help me to stay elastic as much as I can be. Because it's not about me. Like you reached me. And as I mature, it's, I want to be able to be the kind of person that can bless others in their context. Might not be my favorite, but I want to be there as a mentor for them. So I'll, I'll leave the comfort of my world to enter somebody else. That sounds like Jesus leaving heaven, coming to earth, right? So there's this idea of incarnation. And it's a real deal. We've got to struggle with it. So anyway, that, yeah, Walt, you can figure all that out. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I told my board when I came here 11 years that it would be harder for me to put butts in those seats <laughs> than it was for, say, Jim Hubbard 20 years ago or George mm -hmm. Cooper. And when I came here, I, Kirk and I did the same program at Fuller Theological Seminary, the Doctor of Ministry program, which when I started it was church, um, church growth. Uh, Kirk, I think it was about four or five years behind mm -hmm. me there. Right. And um, it became later, thankfully, it became about church health. Because we, re we realized that we may have a lot more numbers, but it wasn't healthy, and Kirk's gone into all, all of that here. But as I looked at and analyzed the situation here at Sky Valley before even coming here, I had almost a year and a half I was talking to Tim Monti before I came here. He wanted me to retire from the Navy a year early, and I said, no, I'm going to finish my full 30 years. Um, I realized that this place needed to change. And... Um, Managing change is one of the greatest um, challenges in leadership to effectively manage change. And one thing I kind of knew, but I've really confirmed, is that as we get older, um, we don't like change. Uh, there's so much change already occurring around us. And I know people have t told me, you know, you know, well, this is like a bastion. This is, this is Christendom. This is the way I, my house, my church back home used to be used to be, and I want it that way until I die. Don't change anything, Walt, until I leave. Well, I tell people if I waited till then, you know, Lou and I would be the only people left. Um, and so, you know, what I said I was going to do is I'm going to change, I'm going to turn the ship slowly. You know, permit the nautical analogy from, or metaphor from a sailor. You know, I can turn a ship two different ways. I can throw that rudder over hard right, and I can just get that thing moving like the way that we drove destroyers when I was a young line officer. And, but, you know, you're going to have people down there trying to eat their chow and it's going to be all over them or there's going to be people falling off the ship and all like that and they're going to be upset with you. The other way to do it is like a cruise ship. A cruise ship slowly changes. And, and the good thing here is unlike the military where I only had two or three years to affect change wherever I was, here I told Tim back then, I said, it's going to take 10 to 15 years before we know whether or not we're, we're, we're effective. And it's, we're in, I'm in year 11 here now. And we have turned the ship slowly, and I know some of you have been here through it, uh, many of you, most of you, and uh, it has a, it's been rocky at times. But trust me, there's, I, don't, I don't change things just to change. It's because I want to reach people. And the people that are buying in the park over the last 10, 15 years, we, we, I, think we've, I think it's like 30% of the houses in Sky Valley have changed, house, have changed hands in the last two years. And those people are way less likely 
to walk through these doors of Forest Hall and come to a worship service than the people were back when Jim Hubbard or George Cooper were here. And I stood up in, the, up in this pulpit 11 years ago when I first came here, and I told the people that were here then, I said, I will never assume that everybody that walks through the door of Forest Hall is a believer, and neither should you. I want this place to be a place that we welcome people that haven't come to Jesus yet. And we need to be ministering to them on the pickleball courts and in the, in the, on the horseshoe pitches and in the pools and stuff like that in an attractive and winsome way that they want to know this Jesus that those of us who know him do know. That's, that's our mission. I appreciate Kirk coming. Uh, I think, uh, how, how'd you like the morning session? Great. This is, this is great stuff. It's stuff that's been on my heart, and he's saying it way better than, way better than, I, than I could. And I appreciate Kirk. Appreciate the band. Lead us in one more song, Bruce, as we get ready to leave. Please stand. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.